And I will be reading for you and preaching for you out of Nehemiah chapter 1, the full chapter. Hear now the word of God. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our heavenly father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this narrative of your people. We thank you for allowing us to see your mighty and strong hand and how it brings forth discipline and mercy. Father, we are people who could pray this prayer that Nehemiah has prayed. We are a people that should pray this prayer. And may it be that you would be merciful to us and that you would not only forgive us, but that you would continue to keep your word that you have promised your people, that you will deliver us, that you will cleanse us, that you will sanctify us, that you will continue to dwell with us here and forevermore. 
even more at the end of the age. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You know, one of the sayings that you sometimes hear that it's not about the destination, it's about the journey. It's about the process of sometimes getting there, that that's really where it's all at. Um, We think about that, whether we're going on a long trip or sometimes when we're taking on a particular endeavor, maybe a schooling or a preparation. And and we know that the destination is the target and we do want to get to the destination, but we also know that there is great value in paying attention and stopping and smelling the roses as we, or even more challenging, maybe the stench sometimes when we are trying to get to a particular place, that there's learning going on. There is opportunity if we were going with other people for there to be the enriching and the encouraging of relationship. When we see the Bible, we see very many times that God has told us about destinations. He's told us about a land. He has told us about a temple. He has told us about a place that he has gone to prepare for us that we see described to us often about destination. But we see that there is much in the journey in getting there. And that if we just focus on the destination and we just strive really hard at all costs without paying attention to the details of the journey, we will miss out on the very point of what God is trying to do with his people. It very much is a lot about the journey, that the destination requires the journey. God could snap his fingers in every one of these situations and every narrative that we see throughout all of his word. He could just snap his fingers and put us there. We know that he has that power. But in his great wisdom and in his great providence, he puts his people in a journey. And here in this particular story in the account of Nehemiah, which is actually half of the story, that it is really the second half of the Ezra and Nehemiah story. It's, and it's not only a portion of a bigger story than that as well, but particularly it's been known as being one book between Ezra and Nehemiah. We're right smack dab in the middle of still being in this journey. And then the overall story of Ezra and Nehemiah is really still just a part of the journey. So it's important for us and it's good for us to really get into this study today, really in the middle of that journey. And I would say that Nehemiah chapter 1 is probably one of the most important chapters of what it really is, a a two-book, one-book combination of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's good for us to show up in the middle of this journey because it is here where the essence of the purpose of the ultimate destination where God intends to bring his people which it is to draw his heart, their hearts, unto himself. God desires to dwell fully with his people, and the process of the journey is really going to be the part that gets us there. And so when we think about this story, and as we find ourselves kind of coming in into a middle of a moment, Let your senses be very keen. Let your eyes and ears be very open because it is in this particular moment of the journey where the ultimate destination lies. Today I'm going to be introducing this narrative of Nehemiah, which again is in the context of really a lot of other people in a bigger story than 
we will end up kind of going back and forth to the book of Ezra. I'm going to be kind of preaching through both. But as I go into this, we're just going to simply look at this chapter, not ignoring the things that are going on. We'll end up getting to the broader context, but just looking at the particular people and characters in this moment and looking at the centerpiece of this moment, which is the broken covenant with God and the restoration and the remembrance and fulfillment of the covenant of God. We have essentially three characters here. We have Nehemiah. We have the remnant of God's people as a whole, which includes Nehemiah. And then we have the God of heaven. We have the God of this remnant. We have the God of Nehemiah. And then we have, as there in the center, is this covenant that God has made with these other characters, the, with the remnant of Israel. And so those would be the four points of my sermon today, is as we go into the stories, we have this moment where we are going into the narrative. If you can imagine, sometimes in a story, in a book, or in a movie, you will end up going right into the middle of the moment, and then the, as it goes further along, it will back up. And it will touch with some on the context a little more and then help you see the bigger picture as we get further. This is very much how the opening of Nehemiah is for us. We're going right in the middle and then we want to know who is this person? Who is this Nehemiah? Who are these people, the remnant of Israel? And who is this God of heaven? And what is this covenant that they are talking about? And what is, why is that important? And why is that a hopeful thing for us today? Nehemiah's name means Yahweh comforts. And it's interesting here, we would think that as we go into this story, that that would not be a comforting thing to see that people are in misery, that people are in trouble, they're in shame, they are broken down and destroyed. This doesn't seem like words that would bring about the encouragement. But it is here in this moment of praying, in this moment of repentance, where we really get to see the greatest part of our hope. We get to put ourselves in the same place of this remnant because we are the remnant of God. We are the remnant of God in this day. And just as Maharus has reminded us, we're not sanctified yet. We're still in that journey. We are in a journey ourselves, looking forward to that destination. I know many people... Many Christians really want to hurry up and get to that destination. We are all very much, and it's okay for us to long and say, come Lord Jesus quickly. But it is the journey that God has set us on today. And as we are on this journey, may the book of Nehemiah, may the life of Nehemiah, and may this prayer of repentance from Nehemiah bring comfort to you. May it teach you how we should respond to our own sin and circumstances. May it become a model for you and may it be a reminder to you of the God that we serve so that you can be reminded of that hope that we have and ultimately our destination on being fully with Jesus Christ. And so let's look here in the context of this story of these three particular characters and this covenant that is being highlighted in this chapter. 
First of all, we are introduced to Nehemiah. This is the words of Nehemiah. This is his account. This is his memoir. And in a sense, it gives a story, but it also has a lot of list. And it's also a lot of information that has letters in it. It's a very interesting writing because we get to see the narrative story, but then we have kind of these references inside of it. We get to see the list that Nehemiah created of different people and why that's important and how even the list, which can be sometimes a little overwhelming to have to read, is actually to be also an encouragement to us as well. And then we get to see the interactions with other characters, with the opposition that they encounter. We get to see those, the actual letters that were written and the conversations that were had amongst different officials that have to do with this particular story. But here we have Nehemiah, who wrote this particular word. We see that it was during a particular time, that this is not just a fairy tale, that this is actually a time that happened in the past, and this is a true event concerning the plight and the life of God's people. But we see in the very beginning here that as he is encountering, hearing about the Jews, hearing about his people, we know that one, that he is not in Jerusalem, that he is not in the land of his people, that he is still in Persia, but that he is in a particular city which is considered to be the capital. Susa is the capital, and he is working there. But then his brother shows up and he has got report about the Jews that had escaped. And we see that Nehemiah inquires about them. Nehemiah wants to know what has happened to these Jews that have escaped their particular exile and have gone back to Jerusalem. And if you've read the book of Ezra, you will know that they've gone back and they have begun the building of the temple. What is their particular circumstance and how are they doing? Well, they're given, he is given bad news. It says the remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. If you go back to Ezra, you will see that the ending of Ezra is kind of an abrupt and probably one of the saddest endings of any of the books in the Bible. Ezra chapter 10, verses 9 through 12, teaches us and shows us that what we have going on here with Nehemiah and his prayer of repentance is kind of connected to the very end of Ezra with Ezra's prayer of repentance. In Ezra chapter 10, verses 9 through 12, it says, Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days, and it was the ninth month and the twentieth day of the month. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter of their sin, being because of heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourself from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all of the assembly with a loud voice responded, It is so. We must do as you, as you have said. If you back up and you look at verse 1, you see Ezra's posture before this particular event, that Ezra is praying and making confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, 
a very great assembly of men and women and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. It is a horrible story. It is a horrible situation. And if you back up a little further, and we'll get into this later on in the sermon series, Ezra was teaching the law. And somewhere in this, they come to understand just that they are in sin. They have intermarried with pagan people. And not just the fact that they married them, there is the automatic understanding that there is this mixing their lives with paganism. And the law of God created this reaction in them. And they realized that they had done things that God had forbidden them to do. And in this ending of Ezra, we see this, not only just the words, but also the conditions. It is pouring down rain. And as they're in this open square, they're, they're trembling at not only of what they have done, but they are cold and miserable because of the rain, the word of God says. So can you imagine that the word of God enlightening to you that you are in sin and as you're being brought together, you're being humbled, the rain is coming down on you. God is is just pouring it on. Not just the things that they're hearing in their ears and in their hearts, their conditions are being very vivid. They are not in the right place with God. And Ezra as a leader for them, is praying and making confession as well, weeping and casting himself down, weeping bitterly. And so that's how Ezra ends. And we see that there is this instruction that they're going to have to do this great divorce amongst these pagan women. And we, the very last sentence in Ezra is reminding us that it's not just these women that are this difficulty of divorcing women, but there were also children involved. It doesn't give us a lot of practicality of how they handled it or what happened to these people, but we can just tell this is not a good situation. This is a horrible situation that the results of their sin is causing a lot of pain. It's causing a lot of pain for their families and a lot of pain for a lot of people, but ultimately it's causing a lot of pain to the name of God. And something has to be done about it. And then in the storyline, even though there is some timeline differences here, here we have Nehemiah getting a report about what's going on with these people. And again, there's not just the circumstance of this trouble and shame that they're experiencing, but there's also these walls. The walls that were supposed to be built around to protect the city of Jerusalem are in shambles. It says that they are broken down and the gates are destroyed. We see that this particular news breaks Nehemiah's heart. We see that Nehemiah is the kind of leader that actually cares about the people. And so he inquires about the people. But when he has made, been made aware of the condition of the people, that he is heartbroken and he weeps and mourns, as we see in Nehemiah 1 verse 4. And then we see in Nehemiah what a faithful leader does. Not only does he have empathy and care and a broken heart for what the condition of the people are in, he begins to pray. He prays and he fasts. He goes immediately to the right place. 
of where he is supposed to be as a leader of God's people. You've got to keep in mind that he is not even really before God's people, but he's being a leader for them by being an intercessor in his prayers for them. He is praying confession corporately for them. He's praying and fasting, and he is going to repentance immediately, understanding how great God is and how low they are. But we also see with Nehemiah tremendous humility. He doesn't just look at the people that he hears about. Here, these exiles are already there, and they're involved in this situation, and he's getting a report of how messed up things are, but he is taking it to heart because he is bonded with them in not only who they are in their identity, but he recognizes that he's also with them in his own sin. In verse 6, it says that even I and my father's household, we have sinned. And then we see another component of Nehemiah's great humility and great leadership in recognizing that his identity before God and the identity of all of God's people are to be servants to God. This is a wonderful model for all Christians, not just Christian leaders, but for all Christians. We learn here in Nehemiah that Nehemiah is caring. He is one who becomes heartbroken and he weeps when others weep. We see that he is one who prays and he fasts for his brothers and sisters in the name of God. And he has great humility. He's not just angered or frustrated. He sees in the story, in the account of what is going on with these people, he sees his own sin. How is it when you hear about other people's sin, how do you react when you hear about other people's sin? Are you irritated? Are you complete, can quickly comparing yourself in a positive light saying, well, at least I'm not that bad. At least I didn't do those kinds of sins. I may be a weak person or I may be a sinner, but I'm not that bad. And do you allow yourself in your own heart to puff yourself up? Nehemiah is being a tremendous example to us in humility. Now, surely you may say, well, yeah, sometimes I hear about sins of people that I have not committed. And so I don't need to repent of those particular sins. So there's no reason for me to go there. Was that truly so? What does the word of God say about the sins that we have committed? Are there any of you who can say, I've committed breaking nine of God's commandments, but there's at least one I haven't committed. There's at least two that I haven't committed, or I can't think of any of those things. Well, the Word of God says that we break all of His if we break one of them. Now, that might take some thought to consider, but God says that we're guilty of all of His commandments when we break even one of them. So when we hear about anyone's sin, though we may not have to go to an immediate posture of repenting for those particular sins, we should at least be humble to be able to understand that in our sin that we are ultimately guilty of the same. Then lastly, one of the great 
attributes of a good leader, but also an attribute of any good Christian, is that we would see our identity as servant. That is who we are. But the great thing is, is that we are servants that get to be called sons. That we have this role in our humility and our lowliness and also in our privilege to be called servants. But we have the inheritance of being those who have the benefits of sons. So we should always understand how great that privilege is both to be called the servants and sons of God. Nehemiah hears bad news. He feels the bad news. And then Nehemiah teaches us that he shares that bad news with the God of his people, with the God of heaven. And because he goes to God with the bad news, there is hope for good news. That teaches us tremendously how the Christian should respond to bad news. Most of us, when we hear bad news and we see different kinds of conditions, in our natural sinful state, we avalanche. How many of you are like that? That when you hear of some kind of bad news, it's really easy to say, yeah, and there's this, and there's this, and there's this. And it's all coming down, and it's going to be a horrible year, and we're all going to die. <laughs> That's how I feel a lot when I, I mean, I go and I tell Jennifer, I said, yeah. And she's not, thankfully, she's not as into news and into social media and not in, she's into the elections, but she, she just waits to hear the report from me. But I'm like, oh, no, this is going to happen, and this happened, and guess what? This happened, and and I can, you know, she gets it all kind of all together from me. And then I have to go, wait, wait, this is not good. But we have hope in the Lord. <laughs> well, is that very convincing unless I can relate to something about God's word where we can find that hope? What we see here that the first step of that is to go to God with this bad news. And to remember his word. To remember the realities of one the reason why this bad news exists is because God told us in his word that if this happens, this is going to be the result. That's what Nehemiah does. He goes here in his prayer and it says, remember your word that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the law. Remember these things that you promised us. And it says, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. He remembers what God had said about sinning. He remembers what God had said about the people of God breaking the covenant of God. That there are curses and there are results and consequences that happen when we go against God's ways. It's good for us, I think, that all of us should be in the word enough to understand when we hear the news of the world that we can identify how that was highlighted in God's word. When, it's, when you see some kind of bad news about a war or about something that has to do with perversion or something that has to do with violence around us or theft, there are ample places in God's word that teaches us that one, that these things are wrong, but also that there are consequences for these things. And then we particularly see that when God's people do these things, 
that there's going to be consequences. Interestingly enough, though, that it's in those particular consequences that we can see grace. And if we go to God's word, even though it's going to be painful to be reminded, I told you, I told you so, we will also get to hear and apply that same phrase, I told you so, in what Nehemiah is reminding God here, says, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. We see here Nehemiah praying God's word back to God and acknowledging that their circumstances and the consequences that they are in are already been told to them in God's word. If they go back to Jeremiah, they would see that this particular exile has been the result of God's promising and fulfilling that he was going to put them in exile for these many years. But we always see in God's word that there is a hope for a remnant of God's people. And so in the confession that Nehemiah is praying before the Lord, inside of this bad news, there is hopeful news. So that's Nehemiah for us. That is who we can see Nehemiah being an exemplar example for us of not only what Christian leadership looks like or what the leadership of God's people should be like when one is here that he is not actually at this particular moment in a place yet where he's able to lead. He's already leading in how he is going before the Lord. This is where we should be. Maybe you're in a particular place where you don't have the immediate access to do the things that you would like to see done that would bring about the reconciliation of God's people in a certain circumstance, whether it's a family situation or whether it's a work situation or whether it's a church situation or a community situation, you can start by taking this bad news before the Lord and praying God's word to God. And if you listen to God's word fully enough, you should also be encouraged and comforted by those very words that God has promised. Then we see here that who Nehemiah is praying for is the remnants of the Jews that escaped exile. What do we know about them? Well, we know that they're in great trouble and great shame. Whether you have read Ezra and Nehemiah fully yet, you can see here in this particular chapter that they are in great trouble and they are in shame. And that these particular walls are like physical manifestations of that same trouble and shame that they have. They have broken walls that shows their defenselessness. They are vulnerable. These walls are destroyed by fire. They're in a very bad state. They're very vulnerable because they are weakened but without protection. Usually many times when we find ourselves encountering God's word and encountering the truth of our sin, that we should be in a place where we are defenseless. But that the defenselessness is not good if we remain there. It's good to acknowledge it. And we see here that in this particular narrative, that the desire that Nehemiah is going to have is to rebuild those walls 
to rebuild those walls, to be those who can be protected, to protect the temple, but to rebuild this protection for God's people. So we see the remnant of the Jews are in great trouble and shame. They are broken, defenseless, they're destroyed. But also if we go to verse 9, we can see that the plight of the Jews in this whole narrative has come from the place where they were in this spread out and scattered. They were in exile before they got to this point. They were in the uttermost parts. I was reading from an, an older version of the English Standard Version earlier this morning, and it has a longer phrase there. I can't remember it. I didn't have time to account for it, but it was, it was like in a, it had an actual location where they were. They were kind of off in the middle of nowhere. But it, we see here that as Nehemiah is praying for this remnant, that God's people were found to be spread out and scattered to the, almost to the ends of the world, known at that time. A lot of times where we find ourselves, when we interact with God's word, we see that we are a long way from where we should be. We're a long way from where we should be in our walk with God. We're a long way from our closeness with God. We may be a long way from where we should be with God's people and with the people that God has covenantally put into our lives. We are often finding ourselves in the uttermost parts, whether it has to do with our maturity in Christ or whether it is in our fulfillment of our covenant responsibilities. But we see inside of this prayer, we see that God promises us in his word that he would bring them and gather them from where they are. We see in this particular story of the exiles of God's people that even though they were from far off, and here we have Nehemiah who, again, he is not in Jerusalem. He's in the capital of a pagan country. He is able to reach to the uttermost parts to save his people. That is a very hopeful thing for us to hear in God's word. That no matter where you are in your maturity, in your walk, in your relationship with God, in your relationship with others, it says that for those who fear his name, those who seek out and acknowledge these particular truths, that there is hope for those people. The remnants that escaped exile escaped exile because God had not forgotten his covenant with his people. They were able to escape the place of the uttermost parts of the world because God loves the remnant of his people. We see Nehemiah describing the God of heaven in verse five as great and awesome. The one who keeps covenant shows his steadfast love Verse 6, he is the God who hears and sees. He is asking God to be attentive to the prayer, to open up your ears and open up your eyes. He knows he can pray this from God because God is one who hears and sees. Not only is distance not a problem for this God, but as we even had seen earlier in our readings, that darkness is not too hard for our God to see through because darkness is like the day to him. 
You might think that your distance away from God or away from where you should be or the darkness of your sin is too far or too dark from God. But Nehemiah knows that this God can hear and see us and see our concern from wherever we are, no matter how dark it is. And the reason why he knows that, because in verse 8, he tells God to remember the very promises that God has made. And he remembers the great power and strong hand that God has shown in the past. He remembers the great things that he did with the people of God in Exodus. That he was able to deliver them by the strong hand against Pharaoh. He sees stories even throughout the kings where time and time again, God's people find themselves far away from him. But God has remembered his promises to save a remnant. And so we see this God of heaven being great, awesome, covenant keeping, steadfast in his love, one who hears and sees, who remembers what he promises and he will fulfill what he promises with his great power in his strong hand. So lastly, I've already interwoven this in those descriptions of those three, but there is this two-edged promise, this two-edged covenant promise that if you sin against God, there are going to be consequences. But if you repent and you return, and if you fear the Lord, he will gather us from wherever we are, and he will bring us to the place that he has chosen so that he may dwell with us, as we see in verse 9. We are not just his servants, we are his redeemed servants, as we see there in verse 10. And then I really appreciate and am encouraged by what we see there in verse 11, that Nehemiah is asking for success. That Nehemiah is asking that he would bring success to his endeavor. I have to admit to you that one of the things as a Christian who believes in the sovereign power and providence of God, and as a pastor and as a father, I don't feel like I have the boldness sometimes or the confidence to ask God to bring success to his immediate endeavors, to our, my immediate endeavors. It says here that he asked for success there in verse 11. He's asking for success today. That he says, give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, this man that he is about to go before, this king, Artaxerxes. We are being taught here by Nehemiah that we can pray for success today in these endeavors. And that is very encouraging to me. Now, we may not necessarily know how the results are going to be in the light of God's will, but we can pray with confidence that God would bring about success in what we're doing. A lot of times I think, well, you know what, I'm just going to keep working, keep doing what I'm told to do, keep teaching like I'm supposed to teach, and I may never see success, and there may not be any fruit for me to enjoy, but at least I can say I'm doing what God told me to do. No, here we have being taught by Nehemiah that it is okay for God, for us to pray to God that he would bring success. 
today. Not just say, well, one day when we get to heaven, one day when Jesus returns, it's all going to be okay. We are being encouraged here that we can be participants and encouraged in the success that he brings to us today. That there is something occurring, something going on. And we can see this evidence in the fact that there is this man, Nehemiah, that is being given this commission that will bring this commission before God's people. And though not perfectly and not bring it all to conclusion, because we know that there's a journey here that they are all on, but peoples are going to have their hearts pricked by the ministry of Nehemiah. There's going to be a change. There are going to be walls that are going to be built. That in this journey, there are going to be seasons of success that are going to be bringing glory to God's name even before his enemies. So we don't know. We, I mean, we can know now in Nehemiah's situation how it's going to look for a little while because we already can see this account. This is history. But we don't always know how God is bringing about his success and bringing about the glory of his name, even in the here and now. But we can pray and trust in that. And then we're reminded in this very last sentence in this chapter that all of this is going on. You know, we kind of get in the middle of this prayer and we're, we're kind of getting in deep with this prayer. And we're like, we're seeing all these gold nuggets in, in this prayer and what's going on. And then we're reminded, now I was the cupbearer to the king. We're kind of brought back to the present moment. He is in the capital of a pagan place before a king that is not one of the kings of God's people in the sense of the king that's going to bring about the Messiah's salvation to God's people. And he is given a particular role in a position. And it's going to be inside of that kind of secular position that God is going to use that as an instrument to bringing a great and wondrous thing for God's people and for the name of God. Does anybody know what a cupbearer is? What a cupbearer does before the king? That's right. He, he tests the wine to see if it's poison. And so he's going to be someone that is trust, someone that the king can trust. And so he's going to be close to the king. I mean, you would hope that he's not going to be one that's an enemy of the king, that the king's hoping to be expendable. But we know that generally this particular role means that he's close to the king is someone that the king can trust, and he's one who is given to great service to this king. We see here in this secular role that Nehemiah has a representation of really something that's going to be greater to come in his role and how he will serve the king of true kings or the true king of kings in his role in being about this leader for God's people. As we go to this table, we see this cup that's before us. We see in Nehemiah a shadow of what Christ accomplishes. We'll learn by the time we get to the end of Nehemiah that it, it's not come to a perfection in the narrative of God's people with Nehemiah. He's literally going to pull his hair out before this story is over with. It's going to be messy. But even in this very first chapter, 
Because we have the fullness of God's revelation, we can know, just as we see in our catechism question today, that it's not going to be Nehemiah that's going to bring about the greatest fulfillment of the perfection of God's people. It's not going to be their work on the wall. Those walls will eventually crumble back down. Those are all there ultimately for the journey to some greater destination to the true king who will bear a cup, a bitter cup, that is necessary to be borne for the sake of the salvation of his people. He will drink a cup that will kill him. And he will kill him to save his people. Nehemiah is here to teach us a part of the journey that will lead us to Jesus Christ. And we know that just from the last sermon series, short sermon series in John, that that journey begins for us in repentance encountering our weak state so that we can know that we are a people in need of a savior. We're going to need a cupbearer. And this king that is the king, the true king of kings, he will drink the poison that was meant for us. Jesus, he dwarfs even Nehemiah, who is a tremendous example for us because he is the one who is the king, who becomes the servant and takes the cup so that we may die to our sin. And if we die to our sin, we can know that we have hope that we'll be raised again like he was. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father,